Scott from Happy Dog Training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today we're going to talk about problems without resolutions. Well, what do I mean by that? There are a lot of things that we can fix with dogs. There's a lot of uh, training solutions we can apply, a lot of things we can train, a lot of things we can suppress, a lot of behaviors we can modify. But there are also a good number of things where no amount of training will change anything. And some of these situations are the most heartbreaking, but others are just unfortunate and actually fairly easy to live with if you can just come to terms with that some management is needed. So I want to talk about a couple of my experiences over. Um, the last 19 years and the things I've seen, the things I've learned and how my views and opinions of this have changed and provide some um, insights and some perspective on how to look at behavioral problems in dogs because that's usually what we're dealing with when we're talking about things that may not have a solution like we're looking for or what we're hoping for. So first thing, I'll be the first one to admit that when I was a less experienced trainer, I was newer to the business, to the industry, maybe five years in or so, I thought I could fix anything. This seems to be a dog trainer disease, and I had it. And I got cured from that by being humbled by dogs. So the more experience you have, the longer you do this job, the more dogs you meet, the more situations and problems you see, and the more you learn about uh, genetics and ethology and evolutionary biology and just the limits of what's possible and understand the root of some of these, these scenarios more, the more you realize that some things are just not meant to be. And it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It's not that we're always talking about terminal solutions here where the dog just has to say bye-bye. This is not even about that. It's just sometimes we as dog owners have to just accept that our dog is more um, a special needs, in quote, um, dog. And some things are just not realistic with him or her. So the most common thing is probably insecure dogs. And a lot of people rescue dogs from shelters, and that's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with it. I rescued a lot of my personal pets from shelters, and if, if you're looking for a companion pet, this is a perfectly fine thing to do. The equation changes somewhat when you're looking for a working dog, but with a pet, there's go rescue, no problem. But a good number of those dogs that you get from the shelter do come with insecurities. And there is a broad range of reasons why these dogs have insecurities. There is no one-size-fits-all answer. And it, it can be as simple as a dog that's been moving in and out of the shelter, being adopted, coming back. That creates insecurity. The dog is being rejected by several families. He doesn't know where he belongs. It's not necessarily good for a weaker mind, while a very solid mind would probably not be affected by that, but most dogs don't have that. So 
they are more in the normal range and being rejected a lot has an impact. But that's one factor that can play into it. Then there's of course genetics, which is always a factor when it comes to insecurity. A really solid, secure dog is not going to be as effective even if the environment ends up sucking or not finding a good home for him. If the dog is really sound, probably not going to affect him that much. But if a dog is somewhat mellower or softer, genetically, yeah, all these things have a greater impact. And you really only realize that once you've seen some really well-bred dogs and see how they recover from things and what they are faced or not faced by to really understand the difference. You have to really see that because until you see it, it doesn't really make, make as much sense um, to, to understand how much genetics actually plays a role in this. If the dog is solid and sound, there's not a whole lot you can do to really make that differ or make that or change that um and, and and screw that up um but okay so there's lots of reasons why dogs may be insecure but let's say you have an insecure dog in your home and you hire a dog trainer you want to build your dog's confidence up these are all good things and dog training can help depending on what, what, what approach you're taking and there's gonna be a limit on how far you can take it you could always make a dog better. That has always been the case with any insecure dog I've um, had as a client. They always get better. How much better? You don't know until you start. And what I tell all of my clients is we're gonna run up against the limit at some point. And it's gonna be slow in the start most likely. The dog has to build some trust. and then we're gonna see the confidence rise and at some point we're gonna plateau and we may rise a little bit further and we're gonna plateau but at some point we're gonna hit a plateau we're not gonna go past and the dog will probably not be a social butterfly at this point so he'll be probably better or he not probably he will be better at this point if it's done right but he probably will not be as secure as the dog owner may have hoped for. And this is a conversation that I always have in the beginning before I even take dogs like that on as clients because it's a really bad idea to set unrealistic expectations. And that's again something that comes with experience. A less experienced trainer will often promise the blue out of the sky and say we can fix everything. When in reality, well, maybe we can fix some of it. But it is unlikely that we're going to fix all of it when it comes to insecurity. Now, surprise is always possible. I've been surprised that dogs have gone further than I thought they would. And I've been surprised with dogs that didn't go as far as I thought they would. So it can go both directions. Although the ones that go further than I think is more common probably because I'm more conservative in my estimates. But I've had a case or two here where the dog didn't quite get as far as I thought it was probably happening, but uh, possible. But it's not the most common thing. So that's one thing. And when you have a dog like that, you have to be okay with that. There is no solution beyond building him up to the extent possible. And then the dog will have a good life with his family. He maybe has a couple of dog friends. Maybe he makes a few more. 
He may have a couple of additional human friends. Maybe he makes some more and that's it. And he has a great life and he can have some freedom within the um, realm of what he can handle. And that's his life then. And that's a good life. There's nothing wrong with that. Can he go to every coffee shop with the owner? Probably not. Can he go to every dog park? Probably not. Will he like everybody? Most definitely not. <laughs> well, so, but it's things that we can be okay with if we just adjust our own expectations. So there is no resolution of fixing that dog because there is not more confidence in there. We're going to run up against limits. It's always the, the thing we, we has be kind of become politically incorrect to say out loud, but it doesn't change the reality that genetics sets some limits. I'm a very talented person. I can learn lots of things. I could learn how to play the piano probably fairly well. I will never be Beethoven. I will never be Mozart. It's not in me. I don't have that. I don't have that special ingredient that made Mozart Mozart and Beethoven Beethoven. Uh -huh. Um, same with tennis. I enjoy playing tennis. I'm not that great at it. I could probably get better if I played it more regularly. I'd be never Andrew Agassi or Boris Becker or whoever is the, the top of the charts these days. These are older names. More from my times when I was younger. But I will never be in that level because I'm, I'm not the tennis genius. And this is with so many things. I have my specialties. I have fields in which I shine where I'm better than others. They're my specialties, and dog training is one of them. But there are limits to how far anyone can go, even though we can learn lots of things and we can explore. So if you even take it from a human perspective, a lot of people end up going to Toastmasters to become better at presenting. Presentation is a good skill to have in, in, in your job, in life, and you can become better at it. You can gain some confidence in speaking in front of groups and Maybe you become an expert and end up loving it. It's possible. But most people just become confident enough to do the things that they need to do for their job. And that's that. And they never really love it. They just become comfortable enough so they can do it without anxiety. And that's the limit that they themselves have. Nothing wrong with having some limits. You just have to be okay with them. Um, you don't have to know everything and be able to do everything. That's not realistic. Nobody can do everything and knows everything, right? So, so nobody can learn everything to a, like the highest level of skill. And it's the same with a dog. So we have to be okay with these limitations. There are no other resolutions beyond that with an insecure animal. So let me give you another example before we get to the some more sober on situations that I have in mind. Another one I mentioned, we have a whole podcast on this, and I don't want to rehash that here, but it's food aggression. So with food aggression, this is often a genetic predisposition. Now, if it comes in a package with other possessive aggressive behaviors, you can fix those possessive aggressive behaviors through training. And it could end up that the food aggression goes away with that, or it could be that the food aggression sticks around after the other possessive aggressive behavior is resolved. Because if it is a genetic predisposition, you're never going to get rid of it completely. And then you have, in these situations, especially with the more inexperienced trainer groups, 
we will have the ones who want to come at it with wrong colors and e-colors and other tools and suppress it in the moment where the dog shows the aggressive behavior towards the food item or towards the person, towards the other dog. And it can be successful in the moment to suppress a behavior like that. And other people will suggest, and the internet is full of this, this is really silly advice, but hand feed the dog, stick your hand in the food bowl when they were a puppy, show them that you are the boss and you can take their food so you don't become food aggressive. This is literally things you read on the internet. This is not advice I'm giving you. I'm just saying these are things that are out there. And when you mess with a puppy's food, you're far more likely to create food aggression than actually prevent it. So don't mess with your dog's food. Let him just eat in peace. But if a dog is food aggressive, none of that genetically predisposition, none of that will be changed by doing any of those things or even suppressing aggressive outbursts over food items in the moment. Yeah, you can stop it in the moment, but you have no guarantee that it's not going to happen again in the future. And you, you could even get to a scenario where oh, he stops doing it for a while over bones, and then all of a sudden it comes back. So if it's a genetic predisposition, you're never going to have the safety and security of having it eradicated because it's impossible. If you just come to terms with that, that your dog needs to eat in a separate room or needs to eat in its crate, and you just don't bother him until it's done, you're going to be a much happier dog owner. Your dog will eat in peace, and you have no problem. Because food aggression is not something that branches out a whole lot. If it's a genetic predisposition, that's what it is. If a dog is food aggressive, let them eat in peace and you have no issues. Dogs that are food aggressive tend to be awesome dogs outside this one thing. So just don't bother them while they're eating. It is very easy to manage. This is not a problematic thing to manage at all. You just have to come to terms with, well, that's who my dog is, so I just let him eat in peace. Which you should be doing anyway. Because we shouldn't be messing with our dog's food. Just let him eat in peace. Just with a food-aggressive dog, it's paramount that you don't screw up on that front. Huh? But they usually give you, give you a look first. It clearly indicates it doesn't touch that. So it's usually, um, you can catch yourself if you forget. Your dog reminds you in this scenario. But this is not something you can fix. So it's not a fixable problem. It's just who your dog is. And it's not an uncommon trait either because... Food aggression is an evolutionarily very successful trait. It's a good attribute for a dog to be food aggressive in the wild. It's very beneficial to be able to defend your resources and be willing to do it. So there's benefits to a dog being food aggressive. So there's plenty of dogs that are. You gotta keep in mind that when we live in a Western world where the dogs live in our homes with us and there's not really a lot of stray dogs out there. This is not the norm on the planet. There is probably three quarters of a billion dogs running around and only a third of them live in homes with people. So there's like half a billion dogs running around in this world in the wild. And it's an evolutionarily successful trade for them to be able to defend their resources. So it's not that we're going to 
see that go anytime soon. So it's, it's a thing that we just as dog owners have to come to terms with and don't despair. There's nothing to really worry about. Just understand it and manage it. Very easy to manage. Nothing to worry about if you just pay attention to that. So there's a couple of things. Anxiety, regression. But let's talk about other things that are not fixable that are more tragic. So you could end up with a dog, even from a breeder, not, not uncommon, that ends up being wacky. And what well, wacky is not really a scientific term, is it now? So, but what I mean by being wacky is you could have a dog who has neurological problems. And these neurological problems could lead to sudden aggressive outbursts. Now, that's not that common, but I've probably worked with 1,600 dogs in my lifetime as a dog trainer over 19 years. And I've seen four or five of those, and I'm just one person. And so there's, there's a good number out there, even just based on if we extrapolate that out to all the dog trainers out there and all the dogs out there. If I see five in 19 years, I don't know what the average is, but there's more than that. <laughs> so, but you can have dogs that are just wired wrong. And they have sudden aggressive outbursts. So you don't know that necessarily initially. You can't even necessarily determine that even if the dog is from a breeder and has per se decent genetics. You look at the parents, you look at the grandparents, you look there's no behavioral issues. So in that case, it's unlikely for that to be the case, but it's not impossible. So you could end up with a dog that is just off. And it could be that it's just one dog in a litter that's off, or it could be that the entire litter has this problem. It becomes a little easier to identify if it's all of the dogs in the litter because you'll see a pattern, but it could be just your dog while the others don't have that or they have it to a lesser extent. So I've, I've seen several scenarios where that was the case. And I know one particular case where it was the entire litter and all the dog owners figured that out at some point, and I think they sued the breeder. And the breeder may not have done anything wrong either. It's not even that the person was at fault. I, I don't know how this ultimately um, ended. I know the dog was euthanized, but who knows if the lawsuit went forward or not. But it's, it's a thing that can just happen. So there's a genetic defect that can happen, and it will take a while to sort out. Because when you first see it, you don't know what you're dealing with. You, you're approaching it from, a, oh, my dog's showing some aggressive behaviors. They're not going to explode from one day to the other, and he's not going to try to kill someone, most likely, from one second to the next. It's just going to start with minor things, likely, as the dog matures. And you think, oh, okay, let's get some training. And a trainer comes in, you start working, and maybe even see improvement. But if it is a genetic defect, that training will ultimately not be able to prevent that. It's just going to blow up at some point. And I had a scenario once where it was Rakita, and it was a nice dog, and he seemed to respond to training, and a lovely family, and, and they loved their dog. The dog was about 14, I think 14 months old or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Could have been even younger. Could have been 10 months old. I, I forgot. It's been a long time ago, at least over 10 years. 
And that dog ended up being neurologically damaged or genetically damaged, neurologically off. And the entire litter he was from was, was not right. So by the time the, my clients got in touch with the rest of the dog owners who adopted or adopted, purchased these dogs from the breeder, I think it was six in total. Um, three had already been euthanized. The fourth one was going through similar issues. And yeah, they ended up euthanizing their dog because it was just too dangerous to live with this animal. So just real quick what actually happened. So you don't think it was just like something minor. It was not. It was The dog was lying on the floor while the whole family was sitting in the living room. And all of a sudden, there was nothing, nothing going on. I mean, it wasn't no TV on the talking or reading or reading. Uh, it was a fairly quiet evening. And the dog was lying on the floor on one end of the room, all of a sudden got up, ran across the room, tried to kill the teenager's son. And luckily the father was a strong, big guy, I think ex-military, and uh, was able to grab this Akita and wrangle him to the ground, and secure him and throw him out um, outside and save, save his son. But that was a completely unprovoked attack that has no explanation. And they went through medical testing that I suggested would be a thyroid test because that's one of those things that can drive aggressive behaviors as thyroid dysfunction over another function. And if it's that, there's medication that's easy to, to deal with. You just have to give the medication, you're good. But the thyroid was fine in this case, and the other options are brain tumor or neurological damage, um, genetic damage in this case. We could also have it from an accident, just like with the first people have become violently aggressive after brain trauma. So it's things like that happen in the human realm as well. But in this case, it was genetic. And it was a very sad story, and the decision for the family was difficult. I was there for them the whole time, we talked a lot, and there was ultimately there was no answer. It was when this happened, this incident happened. You just knew there is no safety to be had here. This is completely unsustainable to live with this animal. He will seriously injure or kill somebody if you do not euthanize him. And you can't put him anywhere else either. So it was it was just one of those stories where there is no fixing it. And it was per se not anyone's fault either. As I said, I don't know how this with a breeder, if the breeder um, bred something he shouldn't have. I, I don't know. But let's just assume not, because that's not necessarily a given that the breeder screwed up. I, I wouldn't start with that assumption. There would have to be some evidence that that happened. But there's not necessarily anybody at fault, and it's just a very, very sad situation. And there is no resolution other than, sadly, to euthanize the dog. And that's, again, a situation that has no resolution. Because what you have to do is not really a resolution. It is it ends the problem, but it's not what you're looking for. You're not fixing anything. It's like you just need to make sure you're safe. And there's other scenarios. As you can have, I, I had a, um, a dog once that had the willingness, when he didn't like something, to go and attack. So most dogs, when they don't like something, and let's say you want to try to put them in a crate and don't like it, they'll turn around and try to nip you. That, that's not uncommon per se, that's fairly normal. But this dog I'm thinking of, 
That wasn't his response. His response was, you must die. That's his response. So his response to, I don't want to do this, is, I'm going to kill you. And even with people, with me in this case, um, and I had a great working relationship with this dog. I've worked with this dog for a while, and he loved me. We had a fun playing and working. We really had a great relationship. When this happened, it happened completely out of the blue. It was very unexpected. Uh, surprised me. Um, obviously, I made it. I'm still here. But it, it was a serious situation that arose in that moment. And it's something we didn't know before because the situation had never happened. I just asked him to go in his crate and that day he decided I don't want to. A crate he's been walked into. I don't know. Many, many times. No problem. That day he decided I don't want to. And if you try to make me, well, you got to go. Um, and it's... It's a situation where you just, in good conscience, cannot give this dog to anybody because if he's willing to do that to someone he likes and enjoys being with in a blink of an eye, what is he going to do to a stranger, right? Or somebody who doesn't know how to how to handle a dog who does this or, or protect himself or secure a dog and um, make sure you don't get bitten any further. And it's, it's a situation, again, that is super sad because I actually really liked this dog. This was a very sad day for me, but it was a dog that belonged to a rescue, so I had to talk to them about this and said, you cannot adopt this dog out. This is just not going to be um, safe. Because you, you're going to end up court and somebody ends up dead if, if you do that. So, so it's, it's one of those things that is sad, super unfortunate. It's not fair to the dog, but you can't live with this animal. You can't have anybody else live with this animal either. It's just not safe. And you, you can't have an animal like that in your house. It, it could potentially end your life. So the dog had to be euthanized. And I, I was there with him all the way to the end because I did like this dog a lot. I was, uh, to me, that was actually a really cool dog. And, but it's just not something you can safely have live with human beings in, in a home anywhere. So it's situations like this where dog trainers that come in being very cocky about what they can do and what we can accomplish and punish this and suppress that and fix this and fix that and change this behavior and change that behavior. Be wary of people who promise you the blue out of the sky. There should always be a nuance in any behavioral discussion that you have. It's not that you do this one training thing and all of a sudden everything's perfect. It's usually a process and it's a journey if things can be changed. And there's a possibility that you only get to some degree to where you want to be and you can't fix it to the entire extent you want. And the same goes when, when you end up in a medication route. It's like the veterinary behaviorist with all the drugs. It's unlikely that that's really going to fix anything. Yes, you can dull the dog's mind and maybe he becomes more sedate, but anybody becomes less um, active when you sedate them partially. <laughs> so it's not really a solution. The dog just can't tell you that he feels horrible now. A person could tell you these drugs make me feel really weird. right? A dog can't tell you this. A dog will just be sleepy or will not walk as much or not be as active. and Maybe because of that, less jumpy. But is he better? Mm, not really. 
Right? It's, it's like a false sense of the dog's better. But again, it's like veterinary behaviorists often promise, oh, you give this drug and it's all going to be fixed by these drugs. And no, it's not. But it's, it's another thing where you have to be just wary. We can't fix everything. Not everything has a resolution that we would prefer. Because you want your dog to be happy and healthy and live a great life and be able to do as much as possible and have a rich experience, be a happy family member. So when you seek help in training or veterinary behaviorists or whatever path you choose, you're hoping for a resolution that gets you what you're actually looking for. And if somebody tells you, well, I don't think you can get there. I, I, this is realistic, but what you're looking for is probably not realistic. Maybe we got lucky, but we can maybe get 80% of that. That's probably a more realistic answer than somebody who comes in telling you, well, we can fix everything and you just have to be the leader and uh, we suppress this and we suppress that and it's all going to be fine. You just have to be the leader. So that, that's, it's not realistic and it sets, sets up you for disappointment as a dog owner and it sets up your dog for failure and it's just not fair to either one of you. So being realistic about what we can fix and what we can't, what we need to manage and how we best do it, is very important when we deal with any behavioral issues. And as I said at the onset, in the beginning of this, we can fix a lot of things. So it's not that there's most behaviors that you just have to live with and manage. That, that's, a, that's something that seems to be advocated a lot by the veterinary behaviorist crowd these days, is just manage everything. And I'm 100 opposed to that. So if you listen to the last podcast on animal welfare, I think that's an actual animal welfare problem. You think to just manage things. We should fix what we can fix. Right? What this podcast is about is about being realistic about what can be fixed and what can't be fixed. 90, 95% of problems that you may have with your dog can probably be resolved successfully. This is more about the 5% where you really can't. And about seeing what those are, identifying what those are, and not making your life more difficult and being disappointed and frustrated by not getting to the promised solution by a so-called professional. And so be wary of we can fix it all solution. That's my whole message with this. Um, we can fix a lot, especially skilled trainers can fix a lot. We've been, we have a lot of experience, we've worked with a lot of dogs. And that, that's a thing, a lot of working experience with dogs from start to finish goes a long way, which is the biggest, um, the biggest downside of going to a veterinary behaviorist, especially initially. Because they don't interact with dogs. You have a consultation, it's half an hour, and then you end up with a prescription, and that's it, right? So that's not understanding what normal dog behavior is. Dog trainers who interact with dogs all day long know what behavior in a dog is normal and which behavior is not. A veterinary behaviorist who reads about what's normal may not be able to judge that as well, because reading about it is one thing. Working with dogs is another. So the more experience, hands-on experience someone has with dogs, 
the more likely they'll give you a realistic assessment of what's feasible, what's realistic, and what's elusive with a particular situation. And the more balanced and nuanced the answer is, the more likely it's closer to the truth. There's, of course, always exceptions, but as a general rule, um, nuanced possibilities, if they're brought up, even if they ultimately end up not applying to your dog and you get lucky and things just work out right, but be being informed of what could potentially happen, go wrong or not work out, is what professional people will usually do when they have consultations about the challenges presented them. It's just like a doctor trying to tell you about all the side effects and risk factors of a procedure you may have. If you go to a very skilled surgeon and you have a pretty standard surgery at a very reputable hospital, the risks he's going to outline are going to be very, very low. They're just not zero. If you get a surgeon that came out of medical school last year and works at a community hospital that has an average reputation, the risk of these side effects or these injuries from that surgery are probably higher. There is an average for a reason, right? Some have higher, some have lower. So it's always about what's the skill set of the person you're talking to of getting an assessment of um, what's realistically going to happen or what's potentially could go wrong or not work out. So look at it in the same realm. Okay, so that's it for today. It was uh, hopefully insightful and give you some perspective if you're dealing with a dog challenge of how you should look at it and what you should look out for when you start interviewing dog trainers in your area that you may want to work with on this. And I uh, hope you find it interesting. You got something out of it. And I uh, see you again next time. Bye.